Art, you told me that you have a question. So let's give Art the microphone. When I was um, reading the next um, sutra that we're speaking about today on valid authority, um, I had some thoughts going through my mind and I took some notes on it and I'm sure you're going to cover it, but I I just wanted to lay lay my thoughts out there first. Um, And I guess the bottom line, and I'll work backwards on this, is we all can trust as infallible, all we can trust is the law of karma. And what my thoughts are is, uh, are there tests? Um, Does valid authority become valid authority through certain tests that we give it? Uh Or is it just intuition that you can trust valid authority? Right. Or um, does one's desire for truth come to bear on the interpretation of valid authority? In other words... I just can't wrap my mind around all of it. Yeah, okay. Well, those are all very good questions. So... Let's go take it in sequence, and we'll start with right understanding, direct perception, inference, and then we'll get to valid authority. Valid authority is the most interesting part of the, is the most interesting part. So, but I think I'll I'll go to it in sequence if that's okay. So hold all those thoughts, and I will too. Is there anything else? Oh, that covers it. That covers it. Good. Thank you for thinking about it. You know, I love this. I love this uh, sutra. This one of my favorites. I've already given a whole class on this sutra when I was in India when the book first came out. So, um, Any other questions left over from anything else that we might have talked about? All right, last week was a departure from the book, to say the least. Okay, the sutra now is 1-7. Right understanding comes from direct perception, inference, and valid authority. Um, the next sutra after this, number one, number eight, is wrong understanding. So we're dealing first where right understanding comes from, then we're coming to wrong understanding. And as this whole book, everything is so succinct. You just have these very simple, direct statements, and like Art was sort of saying at the beginning, it's just such a, a you know, it's just, just such a total definition of things, and, and we really do have to do exactly what you're doing even from the commentary, just keep pulling it apart until we have a clear understanding. Otherwise, um, it won't really work for us. Um, that's why Patanjali has lasted all these centuries, because it's so seminal. You can just make a whole reality from it. So, um, did you have a particular question on that point? All we can trust is infallible is the law of karma, because you read it first but I wasn't sure if there was a question related to that. Well, it seems like that's the bottom line, Um, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really explain the three parts that I um, was was thinking about. You're right, it doesn't. You you know, we have to look to. Or is it it just intuition? Yeah. Or, you know, is it something within our desire that we want it to be true? Oh, desire is my great enemy. (laughs) 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 Um, Because reason follows feeling. And whenever we are emotionally prejudiced in favor of any outcome, you can absolutely rely on the fact that you will find reasons to support it. So the greatest obstacle to intuition is the likes and dislikes of the heart. And in all of the the discussions that we've had up until now, many of them have been about the vrittis, 
and all the different kinds of rittis that they are. And you may remember from earlier in the class, I drew the picture, the ego has a, a particular point of view, it has a commitment, and the energy is built up around that. Now, by very definition, when the river has a whirlpool off to the side, the direct flow of the river is interrupted because there's a pre-commitment to that point of view. Vrittis um, are what create the chaos in our understanding because we have an egoic commitment to a certain point of view. And a vritti is a desire. It's, a, it's some commitment of energy other than the pure commitment to spirit. And it is the greatest obstacle to our understanding. There's absolutely no question about it. So... As Swami says here, just to sort of deal with what you are asking, wrong understanding, no, excuse me, that's the next one, but he says, even the disciples of a true guru will themselves vary in their understanding. So even if you have a valid authority, how people will hear that authority is still highly subjective. And sometimes that subjectivity is true intuition, because all true teaching is individual. And the Master will, in fact, say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. Or out of the mass of teachings, you will choose that which is, resonates with your own nature. And that not, is not necessarily a distortion. But um, the degree to which we are not, our vrittis are not completely calm, um, we are always subject to misunderstanding. And nothing really can be done about that except the continuous effort toward realization. But as the book progresses, you'll hear and see you know, qualities like humility and receptivity um, and just an honest respect for our own capacity to be in error is the way that you protect yourself from that inclination. So there's no point on the path of self-realization. This is the good news and this is the bad news. There's no point when the path of self-realization can be reduced to a secure formula or a dogma. Absolutely no point. So you are always subject to the limitations of your own capacity to understand. And that fundamental both freedom and tremendous insecurity is why... Many people don't like this path. They just, it's just too hard. It's too hard not to know. It's just easier to be a Catholic or a Protestant or a fundamentalist of one kind or another where you just know. You know when you've done the right thing and you know when you've done the wrong thing. On our path, a higher duty is replaced, a higher duty replaces a lower duty. But how do you know whether that's a higher duty or not? You have to have all this intuition about where you're standing and what's really expansive for you. And there's, I, I, I recall mentioning in here once when a woman friend of mine, a very dear friend, became quite alarmed because she began to sense that we really did not put family first. You know, whereas in many churches, the whole church is about the family. And she began to sense that we didn't. And I had to explain to her, it's not that we don't value marriage, family, raising children, all that stability. We we value it enormously. But spiritual freedom is the goal. And that's a terribly insecure position. Because spiritual freedom is so subject to 
interpretation. That's really what this um, whole whole stanza is about. And um, even interpreting right, even even understanding valid spiritual authority requires intuition, humility, self-honesty, receptivity. But if we're at least working to receive that and recognize the value of that, we have a better chance than if we don't recognize valid spiritual authority. But the whole process of recognizing valid spiritual authority is a lifelong pursuit in itself. You know, last week, um, motivated by a question that was asked in here, I ended up spending the whole time talking about lawsuits and just all sorts of uh, chaotic things that do not, do not in themselves produce faith. If anything, they undermine faith if you're going to want to go down a rigid pathway. But on the path of self-realization, you have to deal with what is. So it's just, um, you can't sugarcoat it. I got a letter once from someone, and they asked me a very complicated question. I wrote back, I said, you're asking me two questions. Is there any shortcut to realization, and is there any substitute for intuition? The answer is no and no. (laughs) And that's just the way it is. So your sense that this doesn't spell it out exactly and leaves you open... Um, to enormous crevasses of error is right on the money. Just this last couple of days I had a particular encounter with, with a very dear friend in which I did something that I knew, I knew perfectly well was not the right thing to have done. But in the moment, somehow or another, that very clear perception which I could have articulated just was gone from my head. And a whole series of cascading events happened, and I put a friend of mine in a very difficult position. Um, Her response was predictably to be quite annoyed with me. (laughs) How could she not? My response was first to say, I have absolutely no excuse. I mean, uh, clearly, I am utterly in the wrong. But then after everything calmed down, I said, but you have no idea how many peculiar things had to conspire to cause me to behave in a way that if you'd asked me at any point in my life, I would have said, no, of course, that wouldn't have been the right thing to do. It's like there's just this force sometimes, and the only way I've found to deal with it is to take immediate responsibility and make no self-justification. And if we're willing to take immediate responsibility and, above all things, try not to justify ourselves, you'll find that you can actually... Um, make your way through the minefield pretty easily. What really sinks you, above all, is self-justification. And trying to blame someone else when it's just clearly your fault. I find there's two ways of being wrong. One is that sort of knowing that I was lazy or self-centered or something like that, or, or inconsiderate, and then I did the wrong thing. That's a bad one. And then you have to kind of live also with the sense of, oh, rats, I thought I was more advanced than that, which is a bummer. But the other one is when, even though your actions were completely awful, you were just utterly innocent in it. And uh, then you just know that Divine Mother has some weird intention and she just found you in order to act it out. 
I'm going to tell a story that's unrelated a little bit, and then I'll come back. In, in Bangkok, Thailand, when we first went to India the first two times, we went, th- we went Thai airline, and that gave us an overnight in Bangkok. The first night we took two nights in Bangkok, the second one, which is totally fun. We stopped doing it, though, because it just slowed down the trip too much. Thailand, that was fun. The first time we went to Thailand, we thought it was such an extreme Asian country, so undeveloped and so on. That's how we thought on the way to India. On the way back from India, we thought it was so clean and modern and highly developed. This was 30 years ago, and everything has changed. But one of the things they have in Bangkok is the Golden Buddha, which is this huge, beautiful statue made out of gold. And it's sitting in some little open-air temple, and it's beautiful. The story of the Golden Buddha is this, that some centuries ago, many centuries ago, the Golden Buddha was apparently made and it was the prized possession of a certain king. But then that king began to lose power and this is all true, I don't, I don't know the times and the names of the kings, but it was clearly that his country was going to be overrun and he was going to lose his power and position. So he took the Golden Buddha, moved it to a place just by the riverbank, a place of no particular honor by the riverbank, and had the entire gold thing encased in ceramic so that when the invaders came, which they did indeed and conquered, they saw this ceramic or stone image sitting out by the river and they paid no attention to it, having no idea what was inside. Time passed, apparently, and the memory of what that statue really was also was lost. But then somebody, at some point, began to feel that this was simply too holy a statue to be left out at the mercy of the elements, so a plan was made to move it um, back into a, a place of honor. So somebody had the nerve to decide to do it, and they got a cart, and they got ropes, and they had the whole thing, and they were going to move it. So they're in the process of moving this thing back, but apparently his engineering was not sound enough, and the cart was not sufficiently strong, And so at a certain point, the cart began to crack, the ropes began to break, and to their horror, this thing falls over. Of course, when it fell over, the covering cracked. And for the first time in many centuries, they realized that this was not a a, a thing of relatively small value. It was actually gold all the way inside. And then, of course, they rescued it and brought it into the temple where it's been ever since. Well, I love that story for so many reasons. I mean, you can draw the obvious, that we are stone on the outside and gold on the inside, but that one is too obvious. The one I love is how when God has a certain intention, sometimes he needs an incompetent person to carry it out. (laughs) He needed someone, the engineer had enough chutzpah to imagine that he could do it, but not quite enough skill to carry it out. And I can sort of imagine him lying awake at night worrying about whether it was going to work or not and hoping he did the calculations right, and of course he didn't. And so the thing fell. So every time, you know, I find myself, and this is directly related to what you're saying, when my intuition fails me and instead I find myself having created something I didn't intend to create, even if it doesn't crack immediately into gold, there's a certain part of me that just says, wait a minute, let's just see. Let's just see where this is really going. And that just that little bit of uh, egoic detachment 
that allows us how I might not know everything. And, it's a, and it also allows one to just be much more like, well, seemed like a good idea at a time. Now bear in mind, and I did say this at the beginning, there are two ways to make mistakes. Some are willful, lazy, inconsiderate, me first. And others are, wow, I sure did my best and it did not work out the way I expected. Or like what happened to me. I don't know, how could I have just lost my mind so completely and behaved in a way that if you'd asked me, I never would have behaved. Just completely bewildering. But it happens to all of us sometimes. That's related to your question. Not exactly your question, but your question is, in as much as we live in an absolutely insecure world in which we can't be certain about anything, what do we do? That's what we do. Maybe we're the incompetent engineer moving the Golden Buddha, you never know. (laughs) I've seen too often um, necessary, not always good or pleasant things happen, but I've often seen necessary things happen through wrong actions. That people's errors bring about necessary results that really could not have happened without that. And, well, now I'm going to talk about that comes from direct experience. You know, right understanding comes from direct perception. And direct perception is what we ourselves actually experience. Now, he says, um, um, how to say it, is one tool we can rely on, as he puts it, but only partially. Because there are so many things that cloud our direct perception. And we were just talking about all that conversation about vrittis that comes ahead of time. We just see things the way we see them. We're, we're such a complex arrangement of uh, primarily egoic self-protection. And even Sri Yukteswar, an autobiography of a yogi, he says to Master... Try to listen to what men are really trying to say behind the confusion of the verbiage that they offer to you. And sometimes we have to listen to ourselves behind the confusion of the verbiage. What is it that we're really trying to say? One of the direct perceptions you really want to follow is you want to listen to yourself. When I was really trying to get myself out of a instinctive, wrong, emotional response to a certain situation in my marriage... I had a certain, you know, uh, what I called it was, actually it was the panic survival response is how I named it. You know, when when you live closely with someone and you feel like you're, to a certain extent, dependent on each other for your realities, when David would do certain things, primarily when he would disregard my opinion... (laughs) I'm not proud of it, but there it is... Um, my attachment in life, above all, is to my own ideas. Everybody has their own attachment. I'm a Gemini person. I'm a creative person. My greatest attachment is to my own ideas. My stuff doesn't mean very much to me, but you know, what, the, what I think is really important to me. So when David wouldn't always agree with me because he accurately says, I'm not always right, which I accept, nonetheless, I would often panic just because... If we don't do it my way, what will happen? Nothing, I've gradually come to understand. But but my response to it would always have a certain speed of delivery and a certain tone of voice. And I used to just listen to the validity of my logic and my ideas. 
But I began to realize whenever I was talking that fast, in that tone of voice, I was in a vritti. I was not in the stream of the river because it was impossible to talk that fast in that tone of voice if I was in the center of my own consciousness. I had obviously been sucked into the panic survival vritti and was just flailing about trying to make sure that the whole world conformed to my desires. So I began to realize that whenever I heard that tone of voice, ever, I was wrong. Just as simple as that. And the first thing to do, the first law of holes, H-O-L-E-S, holes, is when you find yourself in one, stop digging. And so whenever I was in that speed, in that tone of voice, I was in a hole, and the most important thing to do was to stop digging, because nothing I said was going to get any better. One of our many, many years ago, when we were all just learning to teach and give Sunday services, one of the young men got, this is when I first heard about the first law of holes, he, for some reason, for his Sunday service topic, and this was before we had the readings, he thought that he would teach everyone about the difference between sabakalpa and nirbakalpa samadhi, which was an ill-advised subject for him to take on, and the more he talked about it, the more ill-advised it became, and it was a total disaster, and afterwards we joked that he needed to learn the first law of holes, which is he was really in one and he should have stopped digging and just changed the subject to something else. So um, when we can begin to understand things in terms of the overarching energy instead of the details, if we're having to fight too hard, for our ideas, which these are the fact, things that I know Swamiji once said to me very, very clearly and strongly, if it's true, other people will see it, you know? And if other people don't see it, there's at least a solid good chance that it's not true. Or even if it's true, it's not the moment. And so there's just signs that you begin to wonder whether your intuition is correct. You know, if I'm the only one who sees this and everybody else is becoming very disharmonious, the more I push it, Perhaps I'm wrong. And, you know, if everybody else, and this is, you don't, you don't sacrifice yourself, but you pay attention. If all these people who, over years, I've come to think, you know, have good intuition, and they all see it a certain way, I at least have to stop and consider what their reality is. You never can. Right understanding comes from direct perception. You can never completely give up your own experience, not on the path of self-realization. You can't just take someone's word for it because sooner or later, I mean, God won't let you stay there. That's the problem with it. On the path of self-realization, sooner or later, you will be tested in such a way that you have to know exactly what you really believe. Without reiterating the whole subject of last week when we were talking about all the persecution that we experienced, when people would come to me and ask, you know, what was going on, I would ask them back, what's your experience? You know, people have said that Ananda is a completely invalid spiritual organization. What's your experience? And then just leave it right there until I got some solid answer. Because what's the point of my experience? If they're asking the question, you know, they need to, they need to be able to stand in their own experience. And maybe they could say, I don't have enough experience to know. Okay, well... What do you know is true? 
Sister Gyanamati, in one of her letters to the, one of the sisters, I don't you know, remember to whom she was writing, but she made this, this point that is so solid on the spiritual path. She said, you have to, I, I mean, I don't know if this is the way she put it, this is how I've understood it. You have to back up on the spiritual path as far as you need to back up till you're standing on some unshakable ground of your own experience that you absolutely know to be true. Um, Swami Kriyananda had an interesting moment in this when, again, just referring back when we were in the middle of all that chaos of the lawsuit and his own guru buys were, as far as he could see, behaving in a way that the guru would never have sanctioned. And people raised the question, how can, uh, how can great disciples be acting this way? And Swamiji, who's very honest, he didn't just dismiss it. In fact, actually, he went very deep inside and for, like, you know, overnight, an evening and a night, he was very withdrawn and very thoughtful. And the next morning he said, you know, that question really um, I, shook me would be too strong a word. But he, he had to take it really seriously. You know, how can dedicated disciples on this path behave in a way that seems so contrary to the teaching? Is there something wrong with the teaching? Is the guru's guidance really not valid? And and he's too honest to just dismiss that thought. He really genuinely entertained that thought. But he came out the next morning and this is what he said. I know what this path has done for me. He said, I can't speak for what it has or has not done to anyone else, but I know what this path has done for me. And that's the basis of my faith, not the observation of others. Well, that's exactly what Mata was saying. He didn't have to back up very far. But you back up to the place where you have some direct perception to work from, whatever that might be. Um, you know that I know that meditation works. I know that I feel good when I go into the temple. I love the music. Um, I've never had such good friends. I feel a sense of God's presence in the Sunday service. I love the touch of light. W- whatever part it might be, no matter how small it might appear, you want to be able to have direct perception that you feel is really valid. And then from that you can build. Um, when people would ask me questions many years ago, you know, do you think Swami Kriyananda is self-realized? Do you think he's, you know, really um, this? Does he, do you think he's infallible or questions like that? Those things would come up because, in other words, can I trust him to follow him? My response was always, I really can't evaluate him beyond a certain point. I can't tell if he's self-realized. I can't tell if his consciousness is equal to master. You know, I just can't perceive on that level. But the difference between Swami Kriyananda and me is really, really self-evident. And until I've closed more of that gap, I'm not going to worry about what's on the other side of it. It just doesn't matter to me. This is, I know what it's done for me. I know what the truth of it here. And oftentimes, even last week it was raised, people have asked me various questions about Swami said this, or it seems contradictory there, or his remarks about the stock market, or what he said about the gold, the price of gold, or the coming economic collapse. He wasn't accurate about those things. You know, 
I don't need him to be accurate about those things because I stand on the place of my own direct perception where I don't have any doubt. And if there's other stuff spinning around me, well, I'm just not going to step over there because I don't know what to do over there. I know what to do right here. And so in an odd sort of way, um, I don't have to reconcile it. I can just live with the contradiction because where I'm standing is based on my direct perception. And then the second half of that in this sutra is inference from your direct perception. Um, It's interesting, at the end of the life of Jesus, and you've often heard this story, but it's a very important story, Jesus said to his disciples, eat my body and drink my blood. Now we have it all worked out. The body is the holy wafer, the blood is the wine, he was giving us communion, this is what it meant. And I don't think so. I think it was a much more esoteric meaning than that. But nonetheless, that ritual has been laid on top of it, and it's a beautiful ritual. And it's been endorsed by many, many saints, and even fascinatingly so. Therese Neumann, who didn't eat for decades, didn't eat anything at all, would eat one holy wafer. She could eat the holy wafer. But if it was unconsecrated, she couldn't eat it. And she could tell if the wafer had been consecrated or not. Consecrated means that the right ritual has been done over it, so it's been shifted from being a mere cracker to being infused with the divine energy that makes it the body of Christ. I mean, it's really easy to just think that there's nothing there, but when a great soul like that says things like that, I mean, I can't stand on direct perception, but my inference from everything else I know about Therese Noemann and everything Master said about her makes me inclined to believe it, you see? So my inference is drawn from the fact that Master put it in Autobiography of a Yogi and really endorsed her as a saint. And I've read biographies of her, and there seems to be a lot of valid authority, you know, valid truth telling us that she really was what she seemed, and this is what she said. So I infer from all the other evidence that she would be telling the truth and this would be a true story, but I have no direct perception of that. Um, in, my, in my life with Swami Kriyananda, I have inferred a lot from my direct experience. My direct experience of his wisdom, of his um, selflessness, of his reliability as a friend. I mean, just I could make a lot of other lists. Caused me to trust him first. And I realized after many years, I, I developed what might look like a sense of mindless trust in him. But it was anything but mindless. It was based on an enormous amount of direct perception. And when I sometimes had to infer a reality that I actually couldn't directly perceive, I was basing it on an enormous amount of direct perception. And all of this leads us to having a certain faith in the the Master's teaching, in, in us being able to declare it to be valid valid spiritual authority, so that even though we may not be able to have direct perception of every aspect of it, we have had enough direct perception that we can infer the truth of the rest of it. And that's where I was going with Jesus. Eat my body and drink my blood, he said. When you read the Bible carefully with a picture in your mind, which I feel my ability to read the Bible has been um, uh, given to me, 
because of the opportunities I've had with Swami Kriyananda for all these years. And to a very slight extent by having met a number of other Swamis and teachers um, through the years, but none of whom I've had any really big experience with, but a little bit here and there, and just hearing stories of this and that. But uh, what I mean by that, and also from hearing Swamiji talk about what it was like to live with Master. Master, of course, was a Christ. Swamiji has never claimed to be such a, such a one. Although, as I say, the difference between Swami and Master is not obvious to me. The difference between Master and me is obvious, so I don't worry about that. But Swamiji talks about life with Yogananda, and he's made a real point of helping us to really grasp that it was real life. It wasn't just... People write novels, you know, about the life of Christ, and I'm a, I have a real low tolerance for what would I call it, airy-fairy spirituality, perhaps. I'm just a real grounded person on the spiritual path. And there was a number of novels that were going around Ananda at some point, and they were, um, you know, they were, they were a valid attempt to try to talk about the Essenes or the life with Christ or something. But there was one of them, and I think it was about the Essenes, and about every 30 minutes, they were all going back to their quarters to change into their ritual white robes. And then they would do whatever they did in their ritual white robes. I began to think, who does all the laundry? <laughs> you know, I know for a fact you can't walk around in a ritual right white robe all that much without it ceasing to be white. Like, you know, what do you do then? It was just so, it wasn't real people having a real life. You know, if you're just going to talk about something, you don't always just have to put on your ritual white robe. That's just somebody's like projection of what it should have been like. But when Swami talks about master, it's, it's just very, it's very real life. He goes out in the car for a ride. He makes curry. He goes and gets shortbread. Um, he has somebody drive his car. He talks to people about the driveway and how they're going to put concrete on it. Just all the different things that Swami talks about. And then having lived with Swamiji and having watched how you know, such a great, inspired mind just goes from subject to subject and is so natural and natural and easy over here and then on the other side just turns into this oracle. And just so how easily. And then how you just all live together. You live with that. You make jokes. You just have life. So when I start reading about the life of Jesus, there's enough in the Bible that if you start with the real picture of these, I mean, they were very young men. And they, they all, they were all, a lot of them were cousins and relatives of each other, so they were very tight-knit. And if the tradition of the Essenes is true, which I'm inclined to believe it is, the Essenes were like a remnant of true Judaism. And within the corrupt priesthood, the true tradition of Judaism was still kept alive in this a relatively uh, isolated community. And it was into that that Jesus was born, and it was those people who really carried the message. It wasn't nearly as random as it appears. But again, you can see that a great master has around him a very tight circle of disciples who always incarnate and move with him. They're not just like, he doesn't just show up and sort of hope there's somebody out there. Um... So when Jesus said, eat my body and drink my blood, and the Bible says, the disciples, I love this line, 
I have so many favorite lines. The disciples said one to another, this is a hard teaching. I mean, it's just so real. Isn't it just so completely real? I mean, after last week's class, I don't know if some of you went out and said, this is a hard teaching. You know? <laughs> but you could have, or you could have said, wow, she's had better nights than this one. Or sometimes I or Swamiji, I mean, Swamiji has, was telling us for how many years has he's been telling us you know, hard times are coming, cataclysmic events are going to come, buy land in the country. I mean, he's just... And he, sometimes he would just get on this theme where he would just talk week after week about these cataclysmic events. How many of you articulated to each other at least said to yourself, this is a hard teaching. I wish you wouldn't talk about this so much. And from that point in Jesus' life, many walked with him no more. Because they just couldn't, couldn't go there with him. Even those who had walked with him just couldn't go with him into this eat my body, drink my blood stuff. In Ananda, Ananda's history, when we were under 12 years of litigation and so much mud was thrown at the wall, some said, this is too hard. And I will walk with him no more. People who'd been there for 25 years just couldn't stand it and they sailed away. So I know what it's like. But... Uh, But Master explained, and this is right where we are, right here in this sutra, Master explained that the test was not about Jesus' wisdom or his teaching, but of the intuition of the disciples, which is they had had an enormous amount of direct perception of the greatness of this teacher. And then now he was doing something that they couldn't understand And would they be able to hold with their own experience even though they couldn't understand what was happening or would the external confusion cause them to doubt their own experience? It was their own intuition that was being tested. Master went further to say that Jesus did it on purpose because as long as he was there, he could hold them all together. But... He knew that he was about to be crucified. They were about to be persecuted. The entire, I mean, a certain amount of people's faith in him was based on the expectation that he was about to declare himself and become triumphant. You know, here he was. The Jews were an oppressed people. He was the the obvious power. If he was, in fact, the Messiah, they had all these expectations of what was going to happen. And... They believed in him also because they expected a certain result. And Jesus knew that all of that hope for that particular result was about to be annihilated. You know, he would be, as you know, arrested, crucified, humiliated, and die. Just gone. Nothing of what they thought of what was going to happen would happen. Judas himself tried to back Jesus into a corner for the sake of declaring himself. But Jesus didn't. He just let himself be killed, which is nothing that Judas expected, which is why he immediately took his own life at the end, because he was devastated. He had not, that was not what he'd intended at all. Now, Jesus knew that people needed to have the strength to hold to their own perception in the face of this great storm that was coming. And he he knew that those who couldn't handle it needed to be moved out already. Swamiji said that at the end of Master's life, 
the last years of Master's life. He made it very difficult for a lot of people. He, he did a lot of house cleaning for the same reason. These people have gotten from me as much as they can, but now we have to make sure that those who are left are strong because otherwise the, it couldn't go forward. Um, so let me think for just a second what I wanted to say about that. Oh, but one has to be prepared at all times for that kind of a test, even whether it comes so dramatically or not, by always making sure that wherever you stand, you're standing on your own truth. When I Often when people are very new on the path, and sometimes their relatives or their friends or their families try to undermine their faith, and they try to defend the teachings... Well, I, um, in the Festival of Light, when that person touches you, well, what's happening is um, the, from the masters, you know, it's just like... <laughs> and I always say, don't, it's, you know, it's the sabakalpa, nirbakalpa, samadhi, don't go there. You know, be, be absolutely ignorant about everything that you're ignorant about. And don't even pretend. Just find whatever tiny piece of it you can actually believe on. Well, you know, I've been to a lot of churches in this city and I enjoy this one the most. Well, you know, it could be this, and I read that, and I heard that. Wow, that's really interesting. I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) Because direct perception and inference that we draw from it. But then, okay, any questions or thoughts about that? Because we're about to move over to spiritual authority. All right. Arthur. Arthur. Did I read this incorrectly, but there's only sort of one line about inference? I'm sorry, say it again. Did I read this incorrectly, or there's only one line about uh, inference in the Inference sutra? from false perception is useless, is that what he says? Yeah. Is there anything else in there? I well, he's just basically saying, because the last of these three valid authorities is the most important of all, because direct perception can be uh, deceived and invalid, inference is only useful if the perception is accurate. So you have to make sure the perception is accurate before the inference will be accurate. He, you know, he, he skips quite quickly to um, valid spiritual authority and then devotes most of it to that point. I've put more energy into the other than he has because I think it's important too. Just Swamiji wrote as he felt inspired to write. So, But... <laughs> Even though Swami has written a commentary on Patanjali, he never pretends that his commentaries are exhaustive. You know, that's he himself. He himself says everything he writes is seminal, and then you can make, this is why I'm doing a whole class on what he's written, otherwise we just read the book out loud and go home. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've also found that on the spiritual path we have to have some understanding of direct perception. I mean, I'm not saying that Swami doesn't feel that way, of course he does. But I, all that I've explained to you is the reason why Master told Swami that there was so much more to do and Swami has told me that there's so much more to do is because everybody sees things a little differently and we just keep sharing it and keep sharing it. I, I Sometimes Swamiji will say, has said things to me like, is that really interesting to people? <laughs> And I don't, I don't really know if this is directly about me or not, but if it isn't, it could have been. There's a letter that I wrote in one of my answers, my questions and answers letters that I was writing for a while, and it was all about facing fear. 
I thought it was a pretty darn good answer myself. I liked it a lot. I thought I did a really good job. Later, in a, converse, in a public lecture, Swami says, and as I say, I don't know if it was really the letter I wrote or not, but the timing tells me I think it was. Somebody showed me this long letter, this long letter that someone wrote about facing your fears. I don't know why they have to write so much about it. I don't have any fears. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, hmm, well, that's why you didn't answer the question, sir. (laughs) I was talking to Swami once when I was struggling so much to write the book about him, just having so much trouble. And he said, I've never had writer's block. Oh. But that wasn't, he wasn't being flip either, actually, because he then gave me some really solid reasons why he's never had writer's block. Because he doesn't consider himself the doer. He just tunes into master and praise, and it all just flows, which, in fact, turned out to be enormously helpful to me. But the first thing he just said was writer's block. I've never had it. Hmm, what planet are you from, sir? Hmm, obviously a different one than mine, but I've never seen him have writer's block. Oh, this needs to be written. Boom, it's written. Just like that direct perception. (laughs) I draw certain inferences from that. This man is not operating from the same deck that I'm operating from, but let me try to find out where he's operating from, because then it will really help me. Okay? Any other questions or thoughts here? Let's take a little break, because we're about to change the subject, so now is the moment. Um, All right. Now we've come to the third point, which is valid spiritual authority. Swamiji indicates here that some translators of Patanjali have said valid scriptural authority. And, it, and from that, people have drawn the belief that the scriptures themselves are the authority that you go to. Swami spends some time explaining that a scripture has to be interpreted. So your faith is really not in the scripture, it's in somebody else's interpretation of the scripture. And that scriptures can be interpreted in many ways depending on how illuminated your thought is and that Swami said he found nothing to, to support the idea that it was actually, that this was actually a reference to scripture. It's re- a reference to valid spiritual authority and then Swami goes on to say that the only really true valid spiritual authority is a true guru, one who has both the, the, the realization and you might actually say the divine assignment, the responsibility to be responsible for people. Um, And that's not something that just comes because you claim it. And I believe last week, or at least in some discussions in these last weeks since Swamiji has died, I've shared conversations I've had with him on the subject of, of our relationship to him. And in one such conversation he said, um, and I, I put this in my book. Um, he said, Master gave me, Master not only asked me to teach, he, gave, he made me spiritually responsible for people. You know, being spiritually responsible for people is actually a very interesting phrase. And I mean, that's not something, you can be a very good teacher, but still not either have it be your destiny or your capacity to actually be spiritually responsible for people. That's really quite, quite an entirely different thing. And that's also why the mere fact that people are clever and can articulate well does not in itself mean that they are also spiritually advanced. Um, the, first, the first person I met 
Swamiji was the second. The first person I met who I felt really had expanded spiritual consciousness, I've told you before, was a monk from India who spoke at the Vedanta Society, the Ramakrishna Center in Hollywood. His consciousness did not impress me the way Swamiji's did, but it was the first time I was aware of the fact that I was in the company of someone who had an expanded awareness of, a whole, of an entirely different order than anything I'd ever seen. He made almost no sense when he spoke. <laughs> partly there was a language barrier, partly there was an accent question. I won't say he made no sense. He wasn't speaking gibberish, but he was not intellectually impressive or philosophically impressive. I was fairly well informed by that point because I'd done a lot of reading, and I was also pretty intellectually and I don't mean that in a positive way. I, meant, I was pretty mental about things myself. And I remember trying to follow this man's uh, discourse and finding myself unable to follow it in some kind of challenging intellectual way. But the more he talked, the more blissful I felt. And then when I spoke to him afterwards, I just remember looking into his eyes and realizing this man was not living on the same plane of existence that I was living on. There was, just, there was a bliss in his eyes. He was just somewhere else. Um, but he didn't fit any of the patterns I had until that time of, of what it meant to be wise. So when Swami speaks about you know, spiritual responsibility, we have to, that's really different than instructing people. Ananda Ma, well, she also was very... Um, you know, she was a brilliant, she was a brilliant jnani, actually. Her teachings are just, all, all her writings that were taken down, she never wrote anything, are, are just really extraordinary. Uh, so she's not really a good example. What I was really going to speak of is when Lahiri Mahashaya was teaching, for example, because he wrote almost nothing or nothing, he would say to his disciples, you know, expound on these Gita verses and I will guide your thoughts. So he didn't bother to explain it himself. He just inspired a disciple to articulate it. When Master dictated his writings, because the question arises, because Swamiji talks about the necessity to edit Master's writings or Master's dictations, and people will say, well, why would a self-realized Master, why would his writings have to be edited? And Swamiji said, well, he just didn't bother to fill in the gaps. He just went across the top of intuition. And he said, the rest of us need to have a little more steps to follow. Even Swamiji's writings, I mean, that's why I give all these classes on his writings, because they're really, um, he's still on the mountaintops. He may be down from the peak that Master was on uh, when he's editing Master's writings, but he's not standing in the canyons where the rest of us live. And a lot of times he's going from peak to peak and it's just necessary to pull it down a little bit more or at least it's interesting to pull it down a little bit more and fill in a few of the pieces and see some of the inferences of what he says. We were saying uh, earlier when we weren't on the record here, I remember a particular time when, let me try to think what caused him to say this. There was some kind of a hoo-ha in the community and then somehow Swami was in the middle of the hoo-ha, people were criticizing or something like that. I don't clearly remember. 
Um, but so I remember there was a whole line of us. We were sitting on the couch. I felt because I remember I felt like birds on a wire. There was sort of a, a little crowd on this couch, sort of sitting in a line. And Swami was speaking to us, and he said, uh, "He said you have no idea." He said, "I bend over backwards to explain things to you." He said, "Master never bothered. Master would give you a word, you know, a, a, a sentence." Or sometimes just a look. And then he would just leave it to you to figure out what he meant. He said, I try so hard to, you know, explain everything and patiently do this. He said, Master just went across. And he said, Master would, you know, just interpret the scriptures. But then others had to come through and really um, fill it all out so that we could see how this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that valid spiritual authority has to be measured by criteria that are not necessarily just the criteria that we are accustomed to looking at each other or even looking at ourselves. And in truth, the fact that, you know, that the gurus in our lives, the great saints in our lives, do not adhere to our little standards says a lot more about our little standards and also even how and in what way we should regard ourselves in this way. So, you know, when Master was living, um, he, he came to America in 1920, and he himself was in his, his 20s at that time. He was a young man in an orange robe from a very exotic country. He did not, he wrote, you know, Cosmic Chance, and he wrote... Songs of the Soul, which was poetry. He wrote Whispers from Eternity. He started writing magazine articles commenting on the various scriptures. But he did not write Autobiography of a Yogi until 1946. And there was no um, established myth about who he was. No. And, and his own life was not explained. Of course, he talked to his disciples. But... but Nowadays, if you're interested, you can go to ananda.org and you can click on something called On This Day in History. And you could have delivered to your email every day this fascinating um, chronicle of, as far, insofar as it's known, what Master was doing on that particular day. This is the fruit of John Parsons' extensive research, who spent years... Going, he's a he's a scholar by nature, and he's gone to all the sources that he could find, and made as much as he possibly can a chronology of where Master was every day of his life in America, or every day of his life. I mean, he's gotten things from like looking at the date of an article in the Divine Romance. You know, when did Master give this particular talk? And he's researched newspapers and all sorts of things. Well, what's fascinating, among many things, is all the different things Master da- did. You know, he addresses the, the bridge group in, uh, or the golf club or the ladies' floral society on, you know, some, you know, gardens of the soul. Or He had all these amazing different topics and on an amazing different variety of subjects, astonishing number, variety of audiences and things that he did. You know, he did not by any means just you know, stand in his own temple and pontificate. He went all over America and, and went way into the heart of where people were, were really at and what they were really doing. So, 
as Swamiji writes, even when he, you know, when Master went to Mount Washington and settled in there, it was not as if floods and floods of good disciples came. They came, Swami said, by ones, is what he said. And he said for, for a long time, Mount Washington continued to function as a hotel in that the disciples checked in and then the disciples checked out. So the valid spiritual authority of being a true guru that was really master was not handed to people on a platter. He simply emanated his consciousness and he left it for the disciples to perceive. And far more than, than we appreciate. And, and unfortunately, because SRF has not encouraged um, a three-dimensional image of him, and because so few of his direct disciples have actually written about him, um, Swamiji, of course, being the best, and Durgamanta's book is also really wonderful, for just giving you a kind of everyday feeling about what it was really like to, to live with this person. But what, what I'm really trying to say here is even our respect for valid spiritual authority, you want to make sure that you're standing on something that you really know. And you're not just believing because everybody else believes. It's much easier to believe because so many people have given credibility to this idea. And Master himself emanates his consciousness and we have all these beautiful pictures and we have all of Swamiji's testimony. We can listen to his own voice. We can read his writing. But it it is important to start with your actual experience but don't keep pulling, don't keep questioning and questioning and questioning and questioning once there's enough evidence there. Um, we, We have to And this is where Swamiji says the most important of these is valid spiritual authority. Once we feel we are in the company of real truth, then what we need to do is we need to continually orient ourselves toward understanding why what is being said is true. Now this is what I'm trying to say by this is there's two ways to try to understand. One is to say, how can I expand my understanding to see why this is true? Or how can I see what's wrong with this to prove that it's not true? And one is a constructive way to question and the other is a destructive way to question. And some people think that they have to constantly sort of try to chip away at the basis of faith. And this is the conversation we've been having about Swamiji quite a lot in this form and in other forms since he passed away especially. It's like, I became oriented from the first moment I saw him to believe that he was a valid spiritual authority. Once I felt myself to be in relationship to a valid spiritual authority, when my, my perception, or the inferences I was drawing from my perception, did not support that he was a valid authority, instead of saying, well, that's it, I'm out of here, I would say, I wonder if I'm not perceiving this accurately. And even though that can sound like a, a, a self-diminishing way of being, um, it actually was just exactly the opposite. Because it was an honest, well, it was based on faith in my own intuition. You know, when one has an experience that you can't deny, I, 
I've expressed this in smaller ways in my life, but this is a really, it's a very important thing to realize. Sometimes I'll have it, and I don't have them that often. This is not, unfortunately for me, an everyday occurrence. But from time to time, I will have a, a thought that I know is more than just an idea. That it's a really a real true intuition about how something ought to go forward, something I ought to do. Just a very powerful intuition that this is how I, what I should do. And after that, many other things can happen. But I have to honor that intuition. I can't let mere doubts, ideas, and opinions undermine it. Because I know enough from experience to know this is true. And sometimes I've been quite willing, I've learned, that I can abandon the struggle to persuade others. Because if it's a true intuition, gradually everyone else will see it. And that's been a very helpful part of it because pretty much every time, in that unique perception, I don't really have to fight for it, even if nobody agrees with me. I can just be as quiet as I can be, because if it's a true intuition, it'll find its way to the front. So, going back to the story about Jesus here, if we've had a true intuition about our discipleship to Master, about our relationship to Swami, about our, our relationship to this spiritual family... We, we, we have to respect that. And if we feel that there is valid spiritual authority here, rather than finding reasons to doubt it, we need to train our minds to find reasons to believe it, valid reasons to believe it, but to ask, how could this be true? And I've said repeatedly, that's how I've always worked with Swamiji. Hmm, I don't really get what he's saying here, but how could this be true? when he would often, when he was much more involved and sometimes he would make suggestions, we should do this, we should do that. Sometimes his suggestions were way out of the box and not everybody had a happy time with his suggestions. Sometimes his suggestions were, I just, I couldn't figure out what he was trying to accomplish. But then I started asking myself, what is he trying to accomplish? Not what has he said, but what is he trying to accomplish? Invariably, if I asked it from that direction... I could somehow get inside what he was doing. And either then I could see why his was a good idea, or I could see, well, yes, sir, but given the facts that you might not be aware of, this is how we can accomplish it. But whenever I was approaching it from how can this be true, what are you really trying to say here, it would always be cooperation and uh, and further expansion. Whenever I would start from the, oh, that's just a dopey idea, why would we want to do that? then it would always just lead to more and more of this, and it never led to a bigger understanding. So it's, it's also the way we relate to that spiritual authority, that we can't relate to it mindlessly, but we also have to relate to it with receptivity and, and common sense. Um, I, I've, I've been interested over the years to see how differently people interpret things. And I've had experiences with some of my friends, you know, the great advantage of being 40 years in this is that mm, there's a lot of chapters in the book. And you, you get to see, oh, well, that didn't work out, but this did, and that didn't work out yet, but that did. And sometimes people will tell me that, well, Swami said this to me, and this is what I had to do, and this is where I had to go. And I'll think, what a strange interpretation of what he said. And sometimes I'll have actually been present and I'll say, I'll say to myself, he never said that at all. You know? So, but then 
what people, what happened to people is they would find themselves in, in increasingly twisted mental positions but would never know how to just back up and try to relate appropriately. Help me understand this to someone who might be able to help them. Um, when people really want to know what Swami actually said, they would often ask me. And sometimes people who are very confused would be advised to ask me. And sometimes they never would. And I always thought it was very significant. And in some cases it turned out to be very significant because they really didn't want to know. Because they knew that I might tell them actually. And they didn't want to know. You know, so you ha- we just have to work with this. But when we are gifted to be in the company of valid spiritual authority, let's not waste it. Because it just gets us out of everything. Swamiji, when he first went to Master, he talked about just how, you know, he used using the modern phrase, it just completely blew his mind when he got there. He said he was so... You have to bear in mind, he's 22 years old, he's in New York City, his father has gone to Egypt, and now his mother's on the boat. I mean, this is not transcontinental flights. He's living in a rented room in somebody else's house. I mean, 22 is not very old. Swami was, of course, a very precocious, let's put it that way, person. But nonetheless, there he was. He goes into a bookstore. He finds Autobiography of a Yogi. Nobody's reading Autobiography of a Yogi. It's 1948. The book has been out for two years. You know, it's the end of the war. Every, I mean, the war has recently ended. Everybody's doing completely other things. He totally knows that this, who this man is, this Indian guru. He reads this book like in five, you know, just as fast as he could possibly read it, between tears of laughter and tears of joy. He gets on the next bus and goes to Los Angeles. Five days and nights on the bus. Completely all by himself, out of nothing. And he didn't know anything. When Master said to him, did you like my book, Autobiography? And Swami talked about how it you know, was the most powerful thing he'd ever read. It had the force to completely transform his life. And Master said, that's because it has my vibrations. He puts that in the path. And Swami thought of a, a grate on the floor that would start shaking like this. A word that we use very commonly now. He'd never even thought about it as a word. And that was just the beginning. He said sometimes during the course of his work day, Swamiji said, he would just become so dizzy with the total change in his life and the far outness of what he was learning that he would literally have to sit down. And then just to make it more confusing, there were all these characters among the other monks, some of whom had been there for a much longer time, all of whom had, let's see, their own understanding of what the teachings really were. And so they would talk about Lemuria and about masters living, great gurus living inside of Mount Shasta and people from UFOs and the necessity for the grape diet in order to be able to realize God. Just all this stuff that would come. And Swamiji just didn't even know how to even begin to discern. So he took, he took to saying, did master say that? Because the only thing he really knew was that Master was his guru. He didn't have any way of evaluating anything else. Because it wasn't as if the things Master said 
were any more sensible or grounded than some of what others were telling him. But he, he just said, did Master say that? And no matter what it was, if Master said it, he, he had to accept it. Even if he, if he didn't know how to, he knew he had to. I used to play a game with Swamiji for, I mean, in my own mind. We lived in those early years, when, when the early years of my marriage, not of my life with David, with uh, Swami, but my life with David. We lived in a dome like this up at the seclusion retreat. That was the, one of the first houses we had. And there was this extremely weird closet because the walls were curved. It's a weird, strange closet. Curved walls are beautiful, but not if you actually have to store things and stuff like that. So this weird closet had this utterly inaccessible corner, and that corner became symbolic for me later when I saw it. Because Swamiji would sometimes say things to me that in my, primarily in my callow youth, I just couldn't understand. Often he would make sweeping generalizations about mankind or about the planet, and I don't know why. That would always make me nervous. Now I'm, you know, now I can't even think why it bothered me, but it used to. But I had too much respect for his spiritual authority to reject it and too much habit of listening to myself to accept it. Too much ego, I would say. I mean, it wasn't even necessarily ego. It was just that I was incapable. I was incapable of pretending. I just, I'm just too... I couldn't pretend. If I didn't get it, I didn't get it. I just couldn't deal with it. But I couldn't throw it away either. And there was no point in arguing with him. It just wasn't sensible. So I would store it, and I would store it way, way back in that corner of that mental closet because if it's hanging in the middle, it's always in the way. And that was actually the habit that I was talking to you about now. You know, I just stand here and people ask me about contradictory things out there. Gee, I don't know. Because I know where I stand. So I really actually, now that I think about it, I started that very, very early. Whoa, that is a weird thought. It is not going in the middle of my mind. It's going over here. But I can't throw it away either. Because if he said it, I just don't know. So I'd stick him up there in the closet. And just like stuff, I mean, I don't know, now that I just wear these blue clothes, it's entirely different. But when I used to shop all the time and had all this different stuff and things were all over the place in my closet, sometimes something would find its way way into the back and I'd just forget it was there or I would... Somebody had insulted me when I was wearing it or said something hurtful and I thought it wasn't attractive or I was lighter or heavier, who knows what it is. And Then some, you find it. You think, wow, this is so nice. Why haven't I been wearing this? And I would find over the years that these, uh, these concepts would come out of that corner of my mind and I would think, well, that's such a beautiful idea. Why was I not able to see that at the time? And I'd find letters or you know, something in a book why was I not able to see that at the time? Well, it just didn't fit me then. But because of respect for valid spiritual authority, it gave me the capacity to grow into it, you see. Otherwise, if we don't have that respect, we are absolutely doomed to remain exactly where we're standing. If we insist on evaluating everything according to what we already know, you know what the prize for that is? you get to stay exactly the same. That is not a a really highly desirable award, is it? No, that's called a curse. You don't want to be there. But you see how deeply important it is 
to have faith in your belief, faith in your own belief in the spiritual authority that you are in, in the guru that you are in relation to. To be honest in your relation to him, but also to be receptive and open to the possibility of growth. Because then you see he can take a hold of you and he can just pull you. He can pull you all the way into himself. But he can't do that without that. And later on we talk about receptivity and attunement. And the beginning of all of those is the belief that there is something there and the understanding that that is the most important part of your spiritual life. Swamiji says, there was a woman at Mount Washington that Master said was after Gyanamata in realization. Swami said, he knew for a fact the woman never meditated longer than 30 minutes at a time. And she attained that high state of spiritual realization by attunement with Master. It's really a very beautiful um, and extremely important fact to keep in mind. Okay, I think that's my whole story. Did I cover your questions? Okay. Anything else? All right, that's tonight. Thank you.